hello to the listeners. We actually couldn't manage to get this show off to a smooth start because, um, Seb, what happened? We winged it. And you screwed we, up. It, yeah. Just accept it. Okay. It's okay. Yeah, we accept sure. your you apologies. Know, I, yeah, and, I, um, I enjoy taking the responsibility for your mistakes. Don't worry. It's good. When we fail, you fail solo. And when we win, we win together. Um, but, uh, you know, we've been running a poll about uh, the weather thing. Obviously, by the time the listeners listen to this, uh, the poll will be over. Because and the weather will have changed. Left. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we asked the simple question of should we drop the weather segment? Here's why. Seb doesn't like the weather segment. I like the weather segment. Um, fortunately, 58.2% uh, said to keep the weather segment. And with that, Seb, how's the weather? It's too dark to tell at this point. Well, it was slightly rainy before uh, <laughs> earlier today. Um, but yeah, I, I have to admit again, so I'm I'm flying to Moscow tomorrow for the first time again in like one and a half years. So I was wow. kind of just locking myself in, preparing and, uh, you know, going over some talks again for a change. Are you excited? Oh, don't worry about locking yourself in. I'm sure when you get there, you'll, you'll be in lockdown. You'll be like, I've got to give a talk. Yes, yeah, sure. After the 15 days quarantine, you will be able to. Uh, I'm not going to talk much about the weather because it's the same as always here. Sunny, nice. Uh, but so, yeah, let's move on to more interesting things like our guests today. Who are they? Is uh, Nat Price and uh, Duncan McGregor, um, who are the authors of Java to Kotlin, a refactoring guidebook, and who've also done a bunch of other things in the Kotlin community. Welcome on the show. Thank you very much. Well, hello. So I know who you are, uh, but... Uh, and I'm pretty sure the audience, a lot of people in the audience know who you are. And everybody that did your workshop at the, what was it, like two Kotlin comps or three, three Kotlin comps? You, three. Three, right? Three out of three. Three Kotlin comps. You had the refactoring to Kotlin workshop, which was always sold out. Uh, so congratulations on that. Um, you. Obviously, you know, with me doing the marketing, it's very easy. It's oh. quite <laughs> easy to be sold out. But um, nonetheless, congratulations. Um myself on the back there uh so yeah so just tell our uh watchers do you say watchers viewers viewers and people that uh hear us audience i think is the, is the <laughs> term audience, <yeah. laughs> and, and listeners a little bit about yourselves so so that you don't like both go at the same time um nat do you want to start first or duncan do you want to start first <laughs> we'll both decide to start first. i'll start first uh duncan can then take all the credit at the end um I'm Nat Price. I've been using Kotlin uh, one day at a time for, since it, just before it went from beta to 1.0. Um, so we, Duncan and I, were working at a major scientific publisher. We were uh, getting annoyed with some of the rough edges of Java, and we looked around at various other languages, and Kotlin stood out as the one that seemed to have the best community, the best support. Uh, at the time, we didn't know what would happen to it, but we decided to use it anyway. It was still in beta. And then we were very happy with it. And just as we had to take our application into production, uh, Google uh, announced that they were going to adopt it. And it went 1.0. And we didn't have to convert everything to Java. So we we um, we lucked in uh, on a bit of a technical gamble. Uh, but, um, but since then, we've uh, been, uh, I guess, talking about our, our learning journey. Uh, learning Kotlin uh, in London and then in KotlinConf uh, around the world. 
Yeah, Nat says, I'm the reason that uh, we adopted Kotlin because he looked at me trying to use Java streams and decided, God, there must be something better than that. Um, <clears throat> uh, we we both sort of come from a London extreme programming, agile community, sort of been around since, um, well, really the whole, the whole of the time of the JVM. I suppose we've been developing on the JVM um, and have been through sort of <clears throat> what used to be called programming and then became object-oriented programming and then became functional programming and yeah, whatever we're doing now. Nice sort of mix, I think. Yeah. In fact, yeah, we, we probably both adopted Java at around the same age as as it, uh, as it, it was then when we, uh, similar to how we adopted Kotlin. So I started in Java before it went 1.0 because I was working in academia at the time and Sun were giving out very early versions of Java to academic partners. Uh, so we could sort of see what it did. And I was writing C++ at the time, so I was very happy to move on to Java and not have to worry about manual memory management. Yeah, I was a C++ programmer as well. Yeah. Give me garbage collection or die. <laughs> or rust. But anyway, that's another another podcast. <laughs> all right. Well, those, I think those are all topics that maybe we can touch upon a little bit later. <laughs> Uh, I I don't think we've had a comparison of of uh, Rust and Kotlin on, on the podcast before because they are, I suppose, a little bit different beasts. Let's maybe start with the uh, with kind of the obvious questions. Uh, you folks have authored a book. What's that all about? How did that come about? And what is it? What's actually in it? Well, I blame Hattie, um, um because um, I, I I started writing a book. Um, quite a long time ago. Um, it's just sort of on on modern programming, I suppose. It was based in Kotlin and had it had a look at it. And I, I sort of came to the conclusion that nobody reads books anymore um, or that I couldn't write one and sort of gave up on it a bit. In the meantime, Nat and I had, um, well, with we, the experience of um, migrating code, um, taking organizations, helping them adopt Kotlin, with the experience of this workshop um, that we ran at KotlinConf, um, and I, I believe that O'Reilly um, came to Hattie and said, who should write a Kotlin book for us? And he said, well, this idiot Duncan has been doing some writing, might try him. Um, so, um, so they came to me, uh, and Nat, obviously, author of another great book. Um, so I came to him, and um, yeah, we decided to sit down and write, uh, write what we knew. Um, and what we knew was um, that... Um, Kotlin had had sort of hit hit a sweet spot in in the way that we programmed. Um, so we had a way of programming Java that that we'd sort of come to over the years, which was really around um, uh, fundamentally immutable objects, um, fundamentally assuming things weren't going to be null, assuming collections weren't going to change, objects weren't going to change, um, and that when we when we came to Kotlin, Kotlin just um, Kotlin just did that for us. I mean, it, that was that was what Kotlin wanted to do. Yeah, it's um, a lot of work to do that in Java, right? Yeah, like, yeah. In Java, yeah. you have to add things in order to make that happen. In Kotlin, that's just the natural sort of um, the natural way of things. And so, yes, we we thought, well, we could write a book on on how um, on on our style of Java, effectively, um, and and Kotlin. Um, we had experience of of converting Java to Kotlin, and so this idea of um, teaching Java programmers, A, how we would do Java, and B, then what that would look like in Kotlin seemed to be a, a logical a logical angle, I suppose. And we had adopted Kotlin on some quite large code bases. 
we'd initially picked it up to write some new proofs for concepts that eventually made it in, in, into production. But then when we uh, picked it up again, we were working on much larger code bases that had originally been started in Java 8, but because they'd been written in this style where, um, where Java is being used in, in largely, you know, where the domain model of your application is largely functional, surrounded by object-oriented code for doing a coordination, um, there was a really clear win in introducing Kotlin because it interoperated well. Data classes shrunk hundreds of lines of code into one. Uh, it was it was an easy sell, um, and the challenge with then was given the size of the code base, you can't convert everything at once. How? What is the best way of gradually introducing it? into a large code base that's under continuous de development we were you know deploying multiple times a day uh, supporting uh, you know the business processes and and we had to be able to introduce kotlin without breaking that without without slowing delivery uh without disrupting things so that was an interesting challenge and, and also an interesting you know we as we learned how to do that we thought that would be an interesting topic for the book and a way of structuring uh, structuring the book as well at first, we, I mean, we had this brilliant idea that we would teach teach the Kotlin language for, through refactoring for Java, which was what our, our workshop was really. Uh, but then we discovered that that was going to be a really big book um, and it was going to take a lot of work and we didn't want to write a really big book. And you keep changing the language, so... <laughs> <laughs> language. Uh, and also there's some very good books on learning, you know, learning Kotlin. And so we decided in the end to focus on, um, on this idea of migrating... Um, Java and, and the way that you program um, and the way that organizations develop from one way to the other way. So you've introduced Kotlin to many organizations, right? I you have to say yes, otherwise I can't yes. have a follow-up question. It's, just like, <laughs> oh, it's not yes. going to work, people. So many organizations. Yes, you have. So many organizations. <laughs> Based on your experience, is it true that uh, folks basically start to write uh, Java and Kotlin as they start to adopt the language, would you say? Do you see what I'm saying? Like basically writing Java, but using Kotlin syntax. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of Java, uh, Java and Kotlin clothing. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that was the key to the book, really. It's like uh, we one of the concepts we introduce in the book is the idea that a language, like, like a piece of wood, when you're doing carpentry, it has a grain. There are some things that are easy to do and there are some things that are difficult to do the more you work with the grain of the language the easier it is if you uh just command shift alt k bump convert a file from java into kotlin you end up with uh you end up with um like some java code but with different syntax but the design is still following the, the grain of java right yeah but you and, and if you just convert everything like that you'll end up with a java system with slightly, you know, with different syntax, better syntax, and there's certainly advantages yeah. from doing that, right? The nullability is 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 uh, you know in the type system is a massive improvement over Java, but but you're not getting the most out of it because Kotlin makes some things much easier: immutability, functions, higher order functions. Uh, it makes that much easier than Java. Just working with immutable collections is so much easier. Uh, making all your data by default immutable and pushing effects to the edge of your system is so much easier. So once you start working with the grain of Kotlin, there are further benefits than just uh, the, the the more concise syntax and you know the the, the additional type safety 
the whole system becomes easier to understand and easier to work with and easier to change. So for for someone who, again, when we look at the kind of the transition, right, the transition period from uh, from Java to Kotlin, is that a story where um, you kind of you would you would start gradually introducing like more and more advanced Kotlin features, like, or is that something where you're like formulate a plan in advance of how you can combine all these fancy Kotlin features and then you know just uh, turn the whole thing immediately into a uh, into a completely idiomatic Kotlin thing? Like, what's the what's the reasonable approach there in in your folks' mind? We, we we can't afford to to stop work on our projects and make them all perfect, right? We have we have code bases, and not only that, we we have the skills that we have as well. We have you know the people in our teams; they have they know what they know. They have an existing style. We have to we have to do these things gradually. We have to, um, and one of the great things about Kotlin, of course, is it's fantastic interoperability with Java. I mean, if if uh, if we had to point to one thing. I guess it was the reason we adopted the language after all. It meant that we could we could take a relatively low risk approach. Um, you know that you can always go back, you could you could keep this system here, this little bit of the system in Kotlin if it all if it all fails. Never does, but you could. Um so yes, um the idea of how you keep how you keep a system um working while you while you change it, which bits to change first? Do you change the bits you're working in? Just say, well, every time we touch a class, we'll convert it to Kotlin, for example. Um, it, should you adopt that strategy? Should you um, uh, should you look for the places where you would gain more mileage from rearchitecting? Those are the sort of questions we ask. But I think your point about the team is really important. It's, is that it's it's really quick to change the code, but changing people's design habits takes more time takes time to ensure that an entire team is working and lining up in the way that they're designing. And that is where taking a more gradual approach really pays off because people can see the effect it's having. More people are working on the same code as it's changing. And so the entire team starts lining up in a, in a, in a you know a different way of, of designing uh, you know, by habit. I have a question. Like, you know, as developers, we really love to work with very large old code bases, don't we? We we don't like greenfield projects where we get to use new technology. Well, some of us actually do, Paddy. Some yeah, right. of us do exactly. actually love working in old code bases. <laughs> but only if we can change them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was wondering whether, you know, the fact that you can take a large code base that is in Java and start to add Kotlin to it, does that incentivize developers? to kind of feel as if they're on a you know greenfield project using some new tech while at the same time in their legacy project do, do you see what i'm saying like it's it's kind of like the incentive of hey i get to play with a new language try new ways of doing things and at the same time don't have to rewrite my entire system from scratch yeah i mean it must be like a like being a lorry driver and and you know, you, you're still going to deliver the goods. You're still going to drive up and down that road every day. But when somebody gives you a nice new lorry, it's great, isn't it? Oh. I've not seen a lorry for years. <laughs> <laughs> What's petrol? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would never recommend, you know, uh, in in uh, in my professional work, say just rewrite everything. Right? It's like so risky. So I think the like Duncan said, like it's such a killer feature the fact that you can slot a bit of kotlin in change your build a little bit uh, and then you can start adding 
uh, you know, some Kotlin classes. You can start converting things. In fact, that's you know the first the first chapter in the book, pretty much beyond the introduction, uh, is we're going to just show you how to make it possible to now start using Kotlin in a Java project. And then the next thing is right now we're going to actually take one class. We'll show you how to change that into Kotlin. Okay, you know, and now we're going to show you how to turn it into some more idiomatic Kotlin. And so on. So that was the structure of the workshop, and that was like the way we start the book. And then we move on to more advanced features or more advanced sort of transformations, where we show how to move from sort of mutable beans into immutable values, how to go from using Java optional into using type check nullable interfaces and objects into functions. How you handle errors instead of throwing, you can return. Uh, out sealed classes, algebraic data types, how we move from open to sealed classes and what the different sort of trade-offs are between having open classes with polymorphism, object-oriented polymorphism and sealed classes and 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 uh, sort of when statements switching over different instances or types, subtypes. Um, and so so we sort of take the, the viewer on a you know, viewer, take the reader, the reader on a journey through 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 that from the sort of small changes up to some more significant design approaches what am I, I mean we wrote we wrote sort of separate chapters of the book uh, and one of our problems was like how we um we we sort of approached writing in a different way and we had to find a way to divide the subject up um but one of my favorite chapters of the book is one of nats where um he talks about migrating a sort of a certain sort of feature and leaving things in the java code and making and putting things into the kotlin code so that even once you've even what even if you added another a new java client for this thing you can then migrate that. You can then migrate that to Kotlin, leaving this sort of long-term refactorings. I think is a fascinating subject. Yeah, especially when you've got very large code bases, you can't just change everything at once. You're going to continue to have Java code that is depending on code that's being transformed into Kotlin. It's very easy to. It's very cheap to transform a piece of Java into Kotlin, and uh, with 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 some you know careful annotation, you can leave the Java code completely unchanged and then with, with we also show techniques about how to ensure that your java code is staying conventional java following java coding conventions while your kotlin code that's depending on the same classes can become conventional kotlin and and, and take advantage of kotlin features like you know operator overloading or uh, um you know uh properties and and all sorts of other kotlin features so so while you're working in the old code base, it still feels like it used to. It's still completely natural to a Java programmer coming to it for the first time. I could be unaware that some of the classes they're using are written in Kotlin, but on the Kotlin side, you can use all of the, the, the productivity features of Kotlin to, to write your code more concisely, uh, more easily, and more type safe. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so... I think one one other topic that's often on on people's minds is well the whole functional approach to things right everything from from higher order functions to what have you um, but I feel like this is maybe something that especially again if you have an older code base that might be a little harder to retrofit just intuitively uh, is that also something that you're talking about in the book very much so I mean we as I say we we came to Kotlin from a style of Java that was 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 quite functional. Our, our aim is to is to start from in the book with examples that we 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 consider sort of typical Java, 
I think in fact there was a tension between Nat and I. Nat, Nat wanted to start from the very first Java that we thought we could write and then convert it to Kotlin. And I wanted to start from the sort of Java that I was seeing in production projects and convert it to Kotlin and then take that thing and migrate it. And sometimes, sometimes we look at like, um, here's some Java, let's make that Java more functional and then convert that thing into Kotlin. And sometimes we say, okay, let's take let, let, we've got some Java, let's convert it into Kotlin and make the result more functional. Either way, it works quite well. As I say, I, I think we start from um, programming is easier the less things change underneath you. So um, we, we have a whole section, for example, on, on Java and Kotlin collections, and, and that even in Java, treating every collection as if it is immutable, never mutating a collection, um, at least never mutating a shared collection, for example, um, is, is a good policy. And we go through, okay, here is um, here's a Java example with a shared shared mutable collection let's let's refactor that um and now <laughs> once we've refactored that and, and we're not sharing a mutable collection now now that becomes a kotlin in read-only collection um, <laughs> um and so now we're now we can naturally convert that to kotlin for example so yes I, I um one of our aims i think was to we've both been very involved in in sort of extreme programming and and refactoring almost as a way of life um there are books on refactoring, but not many books are like showing showing the way that refactorings combine into things. How to how to do one refactoring followed by another refactoring. How how you take a code base from one place to another through a series of transformations. Especially with IntelliJ, it's very very good at this sort of long term <coughs> whole code base sort of things. Um, and so showing showing the way that we have learned to refactor, uh, and we've worked with brilliant brilliant people. Um, <coughs> so. Um, yes, not just not just single transformations, but taking a code base uh, and over a whole chapter, um, the same code over a whole chapter from one place to another. In fact, sometimes over multiple chapters. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned IntelliJ, and and, and then you look at the you know what's the most used uh, refactoring, and it's just rename. It's like, do you know that there's a whole bunch of other things inside IntelliJ? But <laughs> I mean, but to be fair, I use rename probably the most as well. Yeah, like how I put my thoughts into the code. Yeah, sorry, let me rephrase. Like, in comparison to the other ones, the other ones are very, like, rarely used, you know? Like, the proportion is, is very disproportionate. Like, every time I talk to people about how you can, you know, replace uh, inheritance with composition, and you can do that with a, with a, with an action in IntelliJ, they're like, oh, you know, oh, so you've got more than rename refactoring. Yeah, and we've got delete as well. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I want to ask I want to stay on the functional stuff because uh, I mean I may be wrong here, but I get the sense that you both kind of like functional programming. Am I am I am I spelling this correctly? I mean I I don't think we're we're zealots. I think what we've discovered over the years is that really there are there are two ways there are two ways to manage change. You either um, you either don't have things change or you are able to observe all changes. And so there is sort of like a, a, a UI paradigm, the sort of small talk model view controller way of looking at things, which is um, that will allow everything to change. Um, and you really need objects to do that sort of thing, right? You need to be able to talk to an object and say, um, <clears throat> not only what is your state, but tell me when it changes. Um, and that's one way of programming. And I think, um, you know, object-oriented programming grew up um, to support that. It grew up to support um, you know, uh, modeling in Simula. But there's another whole strand of programming, which is which is really based around sort of data and calculations, which is where you say um, we are um, 
nothing changes. If nothing, um, if we if if data is just static, then whenever we ask a question, we get the same answer, and that's really amenable for refactoring. That makes every everything. It's really easy to refactor because it doesn't matter when you do a thing. I've been very influenced by a chap called Eric Norman, who whose view of the world is that functional programming is about differentiating between data, we call them values, things that never change, calculations, and calculations are will always be true because they're always working on the same data, and actions. And actions are just the things that um, change when you ask them. Um, so if you're writing something to a database, um, it matters when you do it. It will change the answers to questions you ask, ask later on. Um, now, we need those actions. We need, we need to write data. We need to do I.O. Um, but a focus on when we're doing things, doing those things very deliberately, I think, is the important thing. And so there is a, there's a, a case for functional programming. There's a case for OO. Um, we want to be able to solve problems by passing messages and asking objects to do things. That, that's still absolutely a thing. Um, but we need to be wary of those things because they, they prevent us from changing code, refactoring it into other forms. Okay, so I'm going to follow that up with a que another question, which is, um, what do you think is missing in the language when it comes to support for functional programming? And do you, I guess I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, <laughs> do you use Arrow? <laughs> We we don't, well I don't. The book doesn't. The book is very much um, sh showing the principles of uh, a functional approach to design in within the grain of Kotlin, without any compiler plugins or using coroutines in clever ways to fake monadic bind. Um, so, you know, in the work we do, depending on the context, we've worked in the JVM for everything from embedded systems with, you know, very small amount of compute up to, you know, big, big enterprise and grid compute systems. So performance is something you do think about and, and the sort of way that you fake monadic bind with coroutines is super clever, but the performance is just not there yet. Right? So okay, you're going are... to have to, sorry, Nat, you brought it up. <laughs> no, you are you are going to have to cut an entire section of this podcast, and that's the bit you're going to have maps. to cut. <laughs> the, way turn, the way that you turn flat maps into like full like full comprehensions in uh, Scala, right? Uh, which is just a nice syntax for doing flat map. Okay? Um, uh, Arrow, I don't know if it still does because I've not actually used Arrow for a while. So possibly the one point release behaves differently. But when I was looking at it, it had a very clever way of pretending to do a Scala for loop. Uh, for, for comprehension, uh, using coroutines to, to bind the, the flat maps together in a nice linear code. If, if you write just flat map in Kotlin, you end up with these very, very deeply nested flat map, and then inside that flat map, and then inside that flat map, and it's gone right off the page, all right, back in again. Right? And that's 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 really impressive. Which kind of defeats the purpose in a way as well, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, for comprehensions like in Scala or, or other languages, you know, are, are a syntax that allow you to write uh, use flat map, but but be able to read it afterwards. Um, now we we don't have that in Kotlin, so we are we talk about how we approach uh, using a functional style, but within within the grain of Kotlin. So Kotlin has inline functions that allows you to do early returns. So we 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 do talk about the trade offs, right? You can do an early return. 
if you are writing a, a flat map over your own type, but you don't want to have these deeply nested things, you can like have inline functions and do early return. And that's that's the Kotlin grain. The, the Kotlin sort of pushes you down that direction. Uh, if you know, because because of the design of the language and the trade-offs that it makes. Uh, you know, the advantage is it's very easy for Java programmers to learn because it doesn't have extremely complicated type system. The type system is pretty much equivalent to Java's. So the way that you structure your modules and plug things together is, is very similar to the way you would do it in Java. But but if you take a more uh, functional approach because your data is immutable, it makes it more convenient. But but we're not we're not going down the whole category theory route, uh, and and that's the style that we 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 approach in the book. Can you explain what category theory is? <laughs> no, <laughs> I've I've got a great deal of respect for the the. For Arrow, um, and I mean, I, I I contributed a bit to it. Um, um, I used it on one project. The problem I have is that I, I just don't think in terms of monoids and applicatives. Um, I I I think um, um, in in a sort of imperative way, and then say, okay, how how can I how can I reduce the amount of mutation that's going on here? How can I how can I reduce this to this idea of actions and, and calculations? How can I make more of my system a calculation and not um how can I how can I compose it out of <coughs> bits and pieces, you know? Um <coughs> so I I yeah I I don't think of my programs in, in that sort of mathematical way. I think you have to look at um thinking thinking in terms of sort of a, a calculus, um thinking in terms of of um the the invariance in your program and so on i think that's very useful but but as i say the the functional programming um vernacular i i, I don't get i don't i don't think of how to compose my problem i i, I couldn't i can't imagine saying um here's a program and i wish to be able to change its concurrency model but really not change anything else about the program i i, I can't cope with that so i'm i'm and i don't th and i guess you know the Java programmers who will read our book um, and and adopt Kotlin um, aren't going to be in that category either. So luckily, we're we're off that hook. <laughs> There's a joke to be made there, but I'm not enough of a category <laughs> theorist to make it. Um, I you know there, there, I think there are certain areas of 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 you know domains where a, a very mathematical approach really helps. You know, I I, I work in finance at times. I have done and. I do at a moment and and there's certainly areas of the domain there how you represent money and contracts and things like that which naturally uh, allow for a compositional way of modeling um but sometimes the world is just too messy and and so it's about finding the balance between how you represent things as a calculus you know that composes nicely and how you just model the messy real world of human relationships and 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 all of that messy side of things and find the right balance between them now as had you promised to give us one feature from kotlin you know like make wait one thing come true um and, and then we get onto arrow i think i think type classes is probably the place um that um i wonder where the language is going is it is it keep 87 um started off as type classes um ended up as dependency injection i never quite understood how um, we now seem to be onto multiple receivers i think multiple receivers is still type classes i think um, but ad hoc polymorphism is the thing that that the language is really sort of missing right the ability to say <coughs> um, we can have it a little bit with extension functions um, but but that's not 
we, we don't get to control how that happens. And so having yes. uh, having polymorphism, not uh, object-oriented style, you know, like dispatch, not attached to a class would it would be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, the ability to adopt an interface effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Higher kind of types would be nice as well, and then you would be able to go full on on the, well, you know, for a bit until you started getting onto all the other things that people have added to Haskell over the years that people will then start demanding. I mean, that is the problem with static type systems is, you know, you always find something that you, you really feel that you should be able to statically type, but you can't. So you want to change the type system. And then, oh, and then I also want to statically type this thing too. And you can't, and so you have to change it again. Okay. But then where do you draw the line? Because from one side, you're saying that, you know, one of the benefits of Kotlin is that the type system is uh, easy to understand, that it's familiar for Java developers, that, you know, uh, but from the other side, you're you're saying, well, let's kind of try and bring in or these concepts are missing, right? The line has to change over time, I think, right? It's um, people's approach to programming changes. People learn different things and it spreads throughout the industry. Now, there was a time when Java co garbage collection was just an absolute no-no. And then, and then that was really popularized by, by Java, I guess. Um, although other languages had it, they were all not mainstream. Um, and people changed the way they designed things as a result. And I, I expect that the functional approach will spread through through the industry in a similar way. And languages will slowly, you know, adopt different features and, and uh, as they, you know, as people expect those features in their languages. I mean, we've learned to cope with higher order functions, haven't we? I mean, that was a, that, that's another thing that, that is sitting around in C. It, it kind of wasn't in C++. It wasn't in Java for a long time. You could see how it was faked with, with sort of implementing interfaces and, and inner classes and so on. Um, but, but we have, as an industry progressed, it, we, we've learned to deal with that stuff. Um, I think that right now, I think type classes is probably the place, right? If, if Swift can cope with type classes, then Kotlin could probably cope with it. I have one more question, actually, because, well, when we're, when we're already talking a little bit about, you know, how languages are going to progress, um, I was wondering, did people already kind of uh, approach you also in regards to the content of your book? And was there something that they found particularly, like, surprising or something that they maybe didn't expect? Um, maybe we were just too predictable, Duncan. They didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> we did when we signed up for this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, we, we, we've had some quite nice feedback on people saying um, that this really helped them understand um, a sort of more modern way of programming. Because I think it, it, we, we, we started not just from, here's an abstract problem, um, and 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 here are ways of solving that problem. But but here is a thing that exists in Java, um, and here is how we can take that thing that is in Java and either refactor it first, then convert it to Kotlin, or convert it to Kotlin and refactor it. Um, it's it's it it you can see the way that there is a that you can see there's a problem that has been solved, and now there's a different way of solving that problem, and the, the new way is shorter or uh, quicker or more easily understandable or easier to take in a different direction. Those sort of things. And we, 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 every chapter starts with you know, uh, a problem from a business domain. So we have a single business domain running through the book, which is uh, a sort of travel planning application. And, and so we will talk about like, okay, this part of the application is doing this. Here's how it's currently modeled. Here's some of the issues with that. Let's like, 
see how we can take that in in a better direction by turning into Kotlin and then applying some idiomatic Kotlin. So each time we start with some idiomatic Java, and then we will move it into Kotlin and turn it into idiomatic Kotlin by small gradual steps. You said you had a couple of people already give you give you the feedback that it helped them understand. Um, maybe one of the interesting questions there would also be, what do people find kind of the hardest maybe to understand? Yeah, we'll have to wait for some uh, negative reviews. <laughs> oh, they, they were all just glowing. Okay. Well, you know, we'll take Currently, it. Currently, we've only got three reviews, I think, in total. So if anyone reads it and wants to give us a, you know, a review, please do. Uh, you know, Amazon is all in Goodreads and there for, for, for us. You know? um, yeah, and we've had friendly reviewers while we were writing it who were giving us feedback on what they found difficult to understand in the book and where, how they would like things simplified or broken apart into separate sections. So I think that's where we had most feedback. Um, and and we took, you know, we we took as much of that on board as we could while in the time that we had available and, and tried to address it. So hopefully the the work of all of our uh, reviewers who were all in the acknowledgements will have will have really paid off because we you know we did get a lot of excellent help. Uh, from people who were reviewing the book while we were writing it, and um, I'm assuming that all of those reviewers did get a did get their complimentary copy, right? We haven't had our complimentary. We copy. haven't even got a copy. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm just I'm just saying that I you know I I, I haven't even received my copy. I'm just yeah, saying no. <laughs> you'll definitely get one. You know when yeah. the trucks uh, bring them it's into the UK, so, I mean, you know, sometime in 2023 or something. I, I'm not even talking about a cut. You know, I'm just talking about a, a, a copy. I mean, Duncan, you did say that it was my fault that you wrote this book, right? So I get the, I get the good parts as well. Oh, oh, imagine if in a few years you kind of like uh, Kotlin, the good parts, oh. and the book is thicker than the, <laughs> the original one. <laughs> anyway, uh, so listen, we I used to ask this on the podcast very early on when people uh, when Kotlin just came out, right, and and people started to use Kotlin. But I still think it's very relevant question, especially to you two that have essentially written the book. What is your recommendation for someone that is uh, on a Java code base and wants to convert to Kotlin? Where would they start? And please don't say me, don't tell me from the tests. People always say the tests, don't they? But the tests yes. are like almost always like the most valuable part of your 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 code base. The tests are the places where. And one of the reasons for saying the test, and, and I and I do, I, I do support this. People say the test because they say, well, it doesn't matter, right? We can, you can start with the tests, and and if it goes wrong, then you can always just like convert the test back into Java, right? But the thing about the test is, the test is a place where you are trying to express normally the combinatorial behavior of a bunch of different bits, right? You've, you've taken a system, and your system is uh, this complicated thing interacting with this complicated thing. Um, <clears throat> And there's an emergent behavior from that. And so that's the way that sort of object-oriented programs work, right? Um, and now your tests, then, um, to the extent they test those two things, are, are trying to express that complication. Um, and so your tests need to be really expressive. And so actually, that is a good reason for making writing your tests in Kotlin, because Kotlin can be really beautifully expressive, especially in tests. So um, <clears throat> don't not do your tests, right? But don't convert your test first because you think that's a low risk thing convert your test first because that's a really high value thing but i'm guessing the majority of people that respond with tests are the former 
you know it's a, well it's a low yes. value thing it doesn't really matter no, no. I'll, I'll start you, with that and if it goes bad to, it's a, i mean okay. the lovely thing about colin and we all love it for this right is that it can be a really beautifully expressive language and and so your ability to communicate um what your system is doing in code in your test is really really important and that's a really good really good place to start but we well the first time we did it, we started with the domain model because our domain model was 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 very amenable to converting to kotlin it was largely functional so we got a lot of bank for the buck we 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 reduced hundreds of lines of code of immutable java where classes had methods to you know return slightly changed copies of them for various business domain reasons into a data class where all that's done for you right test data builders uh, in our unit tests could be replaced once we've done that could be replaced by uh, constants because the data class has the methods on it to uh, allow you to easily change them we could add some extension methods where they you know we wanted some more uh, methods for, for 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 test data builders that were closer to the domain rather than the individual like fields of the class um, but that's suddenly we've shrunk hundreds and hundreds of lines of code down into, you know, two brilliant, right? Or maybe, you know, a few extension methods as well. Um, uh, places where you're working with uh, uh, collections. So the next thing we did was like streams, turning streams into just using a Kotlin's extension methods on collections. You know, that That's a, a big win, you know, in, in terms of sort of simplicity, the whole going from a stream in you know collection into a stream into a collection and when you've got splitterators involved in there and everything it's mind-boggling in java but like much much simpler in kotlin um then you know and and the nullability that what we found was we started introducing kotlin we were using optional in java so we had sort of classes using optional so then we would start pushing out the kotlin and we could start like removing the optional as we went and replacing it with with, with strongly typed nulls and there was a sort of a boundary that was sort of like spreading through the code where inside it was all null safe and then we were converting to and from optional and and th those two little helper functions of like you know optional to nullable nullable to optional were the last ones to go really in, in i think that was the last bit of java that disappeared when we finally had removed all the java from the code base um but that that sort of spread out you know and then and then as it hit some of the more object-oriented parts of our system handling uh, HTTP requests or messages or things like that. Then we would start introducing uh, Kotlin into those and 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 you know making it more OO Kotlin rather than functional Kotlin, uh, but then still getting all the type safety and the concision that that Kotlin brings. Yeah, that was the, the experience on, on on that particular project. But other people have taken other routes. Um, we're big fans uh, of extension functions, and I think when you look at when you look at a Java code base, it tends to be you've got objects with methods on them and, and and in the end um that object has to have the things that it knows how to do but then there are other things you want and they end up in in things like the java collections class you know the ones that do sorting on things and the, the things that take a thing as their first argument and then do do things to it they end up in utilities and so on um and the problem with those is that, that they they don't get called in the same way as methods and so you can't chain them in the same way you end up turning your brain inside out as you try to work your way along a call chain you know this that, oh, but then i have to step back out here and so on and so we're big fans of extension functions and just taking taking a set of java utilities and making <coughs> um rewriting that in kotlin as extension functions it can still be used as static functions then in java um but all of your kotlin code can start then 
chaining these things like together nicely, just reading from left to right. And they're more discoverable. But you know, the other drawback of utility classes in in Java is that you've got to know they exist before you try and call one, right? So in in large code bases with big teams, then what happens is people forget, you know, or don't find them and write them again. And you end up with various copies of them, right? Well, IntelliJ's searching for uh, extension functions means that, you know, you type, what can I do to this thing? And suddenly you've got, you know, the methods and then all the extensions and extensions that are further away. And and, and that makes such a difference. Yeah. And and you just gave me a brilliant idea. Uh, We should write a plugin for IntelliJ that when someone searches for a class that named utility, they're like, I didn't find it, but I found this other one called helper. Is this what you're looking for? (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say that that extension functions are null safety and the null safe operators then start pl- playing very nicely together. So you can now chain nullable things. It's much easier to call an extension function through a nullable reference than it is to pass a nullable reference, you know, potentially nullable reference to a function that can't can't be called with a null. And you know, so suddenly, the the and this is. I think where you know this is one of the inspirations for this concept that we put in the book and based the book around the idea of the grain of the language. It's like these two concepts of the language, extension functions and null safety, suddenly plug together and 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 become more than just you know the sum of their parts. They work together really well to push the design in a certain direction to make you write more extension functions because they're convenient to use. But extension functions can have shorter names than the, than a utility class static functions would need in java so suddenly your code is getting shorter it's getting more expressive it's more type safe and you know and this becomes a sort of virtuous circle that that, that, that sort of pushes the design in a certain direction yep anyway folks we're out of time well we're over time that's the beautiful thing about this webcast we can just go <laughs> as far as much as we want or as little as we want uh, but we do try and keep it under an hour um, I'm really excited for the book. Congratulations. Uh, I think Thank that if, is, uh, if it's as successful as your uh, refactoring to Kotlin workshops, uh, it's going to be a massive success. Uh, please make sure my copy arrives so that I leave a good comment on. Um, <laughs> do you, on, on do you want it signed or, or left valuable? Bloody hell, of course I want it signed. <laughs> They're not going to send me some crappy copy that I could find a PDF online and print it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Head over to I don't Reddit, even have folks. to pay for it then. <laughs> anyway, folks, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. And for everyone else, don't forget to subscribe, hit the bell, notification, all those things that Seb loves that you do. And uh, we'll see you on Twitch. No, we won't. We're not doing Twitch yet, are we? <laughs> I don't think so. No. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe in the future. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.